Welcome to the Real Wolf Record Club. My name is Joe. I am your host here on the Real Wolf Record Club. With me is Hannah and Ben from the Real Wolf Record Club panel. It's finally here, folks. It's finally here. It's It's been a pandemic that has been... I know everyone's tired of talking about the pandemic. I am too. It's a pandemic that's been running the world over since the 60s. Um, I personally have had my own bouts of various manias and phobias. I, I battled uh, Hulkamania for a brief period. I, I still struggle with misophonia uh, on a day-to-day basis. But I have finally, finally caught Beatlemania. It's here. It's Beatles Week on the Real Wolf Record Club. And, and we're talking about, I don't know, I don't even know the Beatles that well, but I know this album. This is the album everyone loves. It's Abbey Road, the 11th studio album by the band, released in 1969. I, how much more context do I need to give about this album? It's the album, The it's not a breakup album, but it's the album they released as they were breaking up. It's got songs like Come Together, which has been covered by everyone. I Want You, She's So Heavy, Here Comes the Sun. It's such a diverse collection of songs from arguably the greatest band of all time right in the midst of their falling apart the first half first half of the album collection of six songs second half collection of unfinished songs commonly referred to as the medley or the long one uh it's i mean paul is this is the paul is dead album right play it backwards it says paul is dead which we'll talk about i don't know if he actually is he's still around yeah Uh, (laughs) But the Beatles, as a band, as a cultural icon, they've saturated our musical identity. There's so much to pull out and think about. And, I mean, if you even whisper that you're not a Beatles fan, ooh, they come for you. Beatlemania. Beatlemania. But, fear not, we have, I think they're a doctor, technically. We'll see. Uh, we have just the guest to help us. Put this record and the Beatles all in perspective. They are a social scientist specializing in complexity and data science at New York University Center for Data Science. They are a research consultant, and recently, I watched it, and I got an encore performance. The recently released the Data Scientist Science Spectacular, which I'll just tell you, it's basically a show about how we're all dumb when we say things like follow the data. <laughs> but it also demonstrated our guests other talents like stand-up comedy, circus performer, and speaking while being out of breath. Uh, our guest is the amazing, the one, the only, Andrea Jones-Roy. Welcome to the Real Wolf Record Club. Whoa, thank you. It's great to be here. That was a very thorough introduction, and I definitely didn't expect you to have watched my show or remember anything from it. So well done. Um, well. Or I got to go on better podcasts because I'm like... <laughs> Not well, used to people looking me up before. <laughs> I, uh, I I will tell you I I have my notes. Well done. I have my notes. That's and amazing preparation. Yeah. I was watching and I was writing things down. I was writing things down about the four kinds of bias. Mm. Um, I was trying to. I, I got fixated. I was like, man, they are really out of breath. Like yeah. after you did the ballet part, I'm like, catch your breath. Yeah. <laughs> there was so much to unpack and yeah, so I watched it. It was great. Is it tell me about that? Is it still available? Is it still something people can go find? That's a good question. I don't know. I thought it was so it's a show I did live at Caveat Theater in New York on March 1st and I was told that if it was live streamed and that if you bought a live stream ticket you got access to the recording for a week. Mm-hmm. But my boyfriend's mother texted me yesterday and said, "Hey, I just watched your show." 
And I was like, how did you, did you steal it? Are you stealing from the arts? <laughs> What's going on? Are you pirating in this? You don't know how your remote works. So I guess it's still there. I don't know. She knows more than I do. I'll ask mm. her how to get a hold of this show. I think so. If nothing else, you can email me and I'll, I'll send you a copy of it. <laughs> well, to, to you, par- you got it. So, so well done. Yeah. It's Well, I mean, to paraphrase comedian Dana Gold, you are basically the Beatles of one-person comedy and circus-accented shows about data scientists. Essentially, the the best in the world. I mean, uh, that that's I don't know how did how does the what what struck that? Why did you decide I need to make this show? Uh, I first of all, I'm gonna add that line and maybe quote you on my website about being the Beatles of all of that. That is Dana Gold's. Dana Gold's. It but is. You applied it to me. Which, I applied it to you. You're basically yeah. the Beatles of yes. The nested. <laughs> attribution that I will give. Got it. Uh, I decided to do it because during the pandemic, those are the three things that I do. I do science, social science, data science, comedy, and circus. And during the pandemic, I was really irritated because I couldn't do the fun parts of any of those things as we all could. And I thought, you know, when we get back, I'm just going to jam it all into one thing and see what happens. <laughs> and uh, it was a lot. <laughs> and yeah. I was very tired. <laughs> You are a professor of data science, and and what you talk about on the on the show is obviously it's it's finding a way to talk about data and information in the tsunami of mm. sorry mom shit that we all get thrown at us every single day. That seems like the most important job in the world, and you basically went with it and said, "I'm going to do a show about it to at least make it accessible." I mean, where did, was mm. that kind of your thought process on what you were trying to get to to? listeners like me <laughs> <laughs> yes i was like who's sitting at home not in my data science class so so i think so it was you know it was a lot to kind of just see if i could pull it off and combine those things and and all of that for very selfish reasons but but totally no i've i tell a big long story in other other shows that i became a scientist by accident in that i went to a grad program thinking i was going to write essays and it turned out to be this like quantitative statistics thing and so three or four years of total agony and misery and imposter syndrome later, I still have imposter syndrome, but I did finally come around and say, oh, I could probably do this. And so I, and I've, and I learned a lot of cool stuff and, and I would never have become a scientist had I not literally not read the description of this program <laughs> that I enrolled in. The program was a, it was a PhD program in political science. And I just like ignored the word science. I was like, whatever, it's politics. We're going to talk politics. I'm going to write essays. Uh, and so I got there and we did algebra and it was a nasty shock, but, but I learned really awesome stuff. And since then I've morphed more into the data science complexity side of things, because that's more interesting to me. It's more interdisciplinary. It's sort of like, you can find data about anything and there's cool techniques you can use on lots of different types of data. So you don't have to just study politics anymore, which Mm -hmm. as you all might imagine, it's nice to take a break from politics. So I love it. Doom scrolling every day. Yeah. Yeah. It's my favorite. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So, so I feel very lucky that I got this like inside view into how science works and what it actually is and all the doubt and uncertainty and questions and biases and all this. I mean, it's a human enterprise like any other. And then, you know, out there in the world, even before the pandemic, and I'll get off my soapbox in a second, but even before the pandemic, we had this idea that science was this like magical thing and we thought of like bunsen burners and and test tubes with foam coming out of it and, and beakers and, and beakers. beakers too yeah yeah and all of that is awesome and that's part of it but that's not really what a lot of science is and then during the pandemic it all fell apart because people were either believing science or not believing science and it's just a thing that people do mm-hmm. and so i just i don't know i think it's cool and i think more people should know about it and i feel very lucky that i do so that was the broader 
goal, but mostly I just wanted to prance around a whole bunch. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, but that's, that's for the show. I mean, and if you follow and, and, you know, our guests or listeners will obviously go check you out on your website and see, but you've worked with lots of places, uh, statistical outlets and forgive me for not thinking of it. Nate Silver's website, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, there you go. Lots of different places. So it just, it seems like though, that there's a, I don't want to call it a holy war because that feels mm -hmm. like I'm saying it's wrong, but like there's, there's a cause that you're, you're sort of hmm. preaching, so to speak, which is this idea that all the corporate techno babble that we hear about, and even, you know, the, there's people in their yard signs that say we believe in science and all that good stuff. It's, it's really I don't want to say harmful way, but it is kind of a mm. harmful way to think about all this information. I mean, is that is that a fair that you have a cause with within this work you're doing? Well, as you were saying that, I was just thinking how glad I am that you're recording this because that's a much better way to put whatever I've tried to yammer <laughs> on about. I was like, I'm gonna replay this back. I'll play it backwards. It'll say Paul is dead, and then I'll have a better answer. But yeah, that's that's a much more eloquent way of putting it. That I I do feel concerned that we're we're sort of turning science into something that you have faith about. Mm -hmm. And the whole point of science is, this is gonna sound grim, but is you don't rely on faith and you don't have faith. And yes, there are religious scientists. And yes, we could argue that science itself has a culture and you, you can kind of like believe the methods work or not. You sort of have to believe in math and some other things. But generally speaking, from what I've seen, thinking I have an idea, I wonder if I'm right. And going and looking for evidence and then updating that idea is pretty much the best we can do as humans to understand what's going on. And mm -hmm. I think, yeah, I think we've gotten away from that. And I liked what you said about the techno babble as well. I mean, frankly, because I'm, I'm here to be honest, the whole, I was very against the term data science until I was offered a job <laughs> in data science because <laughs> I came up in political <laughs> science and social science and science generally. And then when the word data science started to be used a whole lot, you know, 10 years ago or so, I was like, this is crap. Science, data is what science is like we just, we work with data in all fields. Data science is just science, science. It's like ATM machine, it doesn't make any right. sense. But then NYU was like, we'll hire you. And I said, yes, I'm a data scientist. And <laughs> I, can roll and with I that. literally do the same things I learned in grad school. I just do it to other numbers that aren't just about politics, right? Mm -hmm. And I increasingly have come around to the fact that it is a real field. It only took teaching it for eight semesters to, to conclude that. And there are techniques and there's machine learning and all this stuff, but we are fed this crap. You know, you think of like, advertisements, whether it's Instagram or TV, that are like, you know, our AI powered smart insights are going to transform your business for the blah, blah, blah. And it's like, not really. They're just <laughs> jamming some numbers into a thing and telling you that it's a seven. And you know, no one knows what that means. <laughs> right. Hannah corrected me on this. I said, what's a vector? And she's like, I don't know what a vector is. I'm like, I don't because I heard you guys talking about it. And it was like diversity like the you, where you want to fit in, you know, you want to increase diversity in your workplace. So go for a seven. Sevens are good, right? I mean, it's that kind of point of yes. The information's only as good as what you understand it to be. Right. And we measure people according to. We think that we're turning people into numbers that mean something, but usually we're just writing down like this is a five, and this person's a four, and this person's an eight, and it's like we're just writing down how much we like each person. I will say, though, I'm going to take the, you know, I work in the court system, so I'm going to take ah, the yes. opposite side here uh, shortly. It. And I will yeah. say, though. You may approach we... the bench. I don't know what you say in court. Yeah. <laughs> You're out of order. <laughs> I object. Yeah. Is the stenographer um, here? What's happening? I, but I will say, I mean, we just lived through, we're still living through to some degree, the most tumultuous period that I can remember 
Um, I don't think that's a controversial statement. We had a, a le the leader of the free world, you know, the whole fake news and alternative facts. And I, I do have to say, isn't it at least a nod or step in the right direction to hear whether it be companies or people or whatever saying, well, let's follow the data. I mean, isn't mm. that like a step towards let's, let's agree that data is important. Yeah. You are right to say that. Uh, and I wonder myself about this message that I'm like increasingly shouting from rooftops. I used to just tweet it angrily and then I sort of <laughs> got louder about it. <laughs> you know, or you just say it to NYU students. They're not going to tell anyone. They're not even listening. You know, you can say whatever you want in there. It's wild. Sometimes I just read my diary and they, they're all asleep. I, I do worry about it though. I have to say you're right to bring that up because I, on the one hand, I'm, I think a lot of stuff that I say, including what you saw in my show in probably what I said on this podcast so far, if you take it out of context, I sound extremely anti-science. You know, numbers lie and we can't believe anything and we're just codifying what we think and da da da. And if Mike Pence got a hold of that, it would make the that vice presidential debate even worse than it already was, you know? <laughs> Never mind. I mean the fly was awesome, but other than that, I'm living in the past. <laughs> so, so Get yeah, over on the it. one hand, I do worry about this. But on the other hand, I I have decided and I, I, I don't trust myself for anything, so I could be totally wrong about this, but I've decided that one of the reasons we're seeing this split, I think, my hypothesis, is that one of the reasons we're seeing this split, at least in the US, about like science skepticism, climate skepticism, vaccine skepticism, mask skepticism, there's a lot of reasons for this, but one of them is that we have this narrative that science is right and that data is fact, and then when scientists come out and say, we were wrong, you have to be six feet apart. We were wrong, you do have to wear a mask. We were wrong, you need two masks. We were wrong, you need a surgeon. We were wrong, you need a booster. We were wrong, the, the climate change is coming because of, I don't know enough about climate to say, right? That undermines trust in science because they're like, why would I believe these people who are wrong all the time? And so I'm trying to flip the narrative and say the whole point is to be wrong and to admit that we're wrong and to embrace that we're wrong and then try again. But I think you're right that I could at least phrase the part about data more. <laughs> well, no, don't mistake it. It was not a, yeah. a critique. Like, let me give no, 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 Andrea some yeah. tips here. A note. Yeah, I got a yeah. note. Yeah, <laughs> um, I've come on your show so you can critique my... <laughs> All right, let's run it back once more. Um, yeah, okay, fine. From the top. The feeling. Uh, but yeah. I, I do think, I mean, I, I think about that because, you know, there's this under, this, this current in... Uh, uh, American society, I guess you have to say it broadly, of anti-intellectualism for mm -hmm. so long where people say, and I think that's what happens when you have people being confronted with, my views are this, and my views, I probably don't realize this, are based on incomplete understanding of the world, unfamiliarity with that otherness, you know, whatever that may be, whether it be race or gender or urban versus rural, you've got all these things that you don't know, and then you're confronted and data says, no, mm. people aren't actually inferior because they're of a different race or you're confronted. Right. And then suddenly there's, well, I can either choose to abandon or right. accept. And usually right. it's easier to just accept your own views and say, those are my views. Right. Um, so I, I just, I wonder though, I mean, what, what do we do with that? I mean, how do we talk about data in a way that, is there a way to talk about data in a way that helps people feel inclusive included in the like, conversation you know i thought you say like feel that there's like even a reality around us yeah well but that yeah. too yeah any of those yeah. any of those things so so i think so so two things so one i would make a distinction between facts and data 
and facts are things that happened and we can write down what happened and we can dispute, you know, who shot first or who did whatever, you know, I don't know why I have violence on my mind today. Yeah, that was a good one. I like that. (laughs) Yeah. Right. (laughs) But, but we all have, you know, historical record and I'm not saying that I, I, you know, see a crash and there wasn't actually a crash because it didn't occur. Right. There's a reality in the world. Mm -hmm. The trick with data is that, and I, and I alluded to this a tiny bit in my show, but I'll assume that most of your listeners have not yet watched my show. So, uh, not I yet. Think, yeah, not yet. <laughs> that something happens when we turn the world, take it from a description of the world and turn it into a bunch of numbers. And when we get to this, here's that phrase we were talking about before we started recording, we get to this large N sample size. So large N meaning a big sample. And we say, oh, okay, you know, three times that a person, you know, said something dismissive to someone when they, walked into their store, you're like, ah, that's anecdotal. But if you can see in a spreadsheet that it happened, you know, 10 out of 10 times, 100 out of 100 times, that someone wasn't treated properly when they walked into a store because of something about, then you have a a more compelling story. I mean, I don't need to tell the lawyer in the room about evidence. (laughs) But it's still the case that that data that we have that we're referring to only exists because I bothered to write it down. And what I wrote down might depend on what my perspective is about the world. And I might write down what that person looked like. I might write down what someone said. I might write down what kind mm. of gun there. I don't know what is going, what scene I'm talking about right now. <laughs> right? I got an idea. I've seen that one. <laughs> yeah, but the, the, the data is nothing more than a description. And all descriptions can be potentially flawed. On average, you know, we hope that those flaws cancel out. But there's a lot of data out there about things like economic development. And we tell big, long, fancy stories about economic development around the world. But the 50 poorest countries are not even included in that data set because they don't have the infrastructure to collect the data or there's no record keeping. So we don't know about much of the world and much of the world that we're trying to describe with data. We don't even have data on. And so the data itself is not magical. It's just another way of writing down what happened. And I will say the last thing on this, I will say that, you know, skepticism and science communication and a lot of that field, I don't do as much of that as I probably should. But the idea is that there's tons and tons of data out, data sets out there for any particular issue that I care about. You want to look at on balance, am I, is, are, is the data consistent with my views, as opposed to like, find the data set that confirms that you're right, which is where you get into trouble and you end up in like, flat earthers and anti-vaxxers and whatever, because you find the one study. I don't know what your views are. Maybe this is a big anti-vaxxer podcast, right? (laughs) Surprise! (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You know, but you can find data to support any story. It's on average, does most of the evidence go in the direction uh, of your views or not? And if not, you should update them. And it's, yeah, it's the magical property piece that makes me nervous. Is is it... um... Because you talk a lot about, it sounds like you're talking a little bit about like selection bias or, yeah. I mean, is, is that, is that the most, <laughs> what's the most dangerous bias? Like, is Ooh. that the one selection bias or conference? I mean, it seems like they're all present, but that I, I hear what you talk a little bit on, on your show about um, the, what makes people happy worldwide. Yeah. And you have these studies and they, they ask like, it's such an incomplete selection. It's not random at all. Yeah. Is that the most dangerous bias that we're facing? If you had to pick one? Is that a smart just, question? That feels like a, a, a not smart question. It's a smart question, A, and B, it's the name of a Netflix movie that I would watch the heck out of. So the, the <laughs> world's most dangerous bias or something dangerous like that. Like, I would it's a reality sure dating that. show. Yeah, yeah. You know, they're all dangerous. Uh, yes. Selection, well, I'm not gonna, we can do a, an authoritative ranking and really get people worked up. 
Uh, I am going to err towards exclusion bias, which is that we sometimes, well, we often don't have data on things that we collectively don't think are worth collecting data on. Mm. So we don't have much data on justice, equity, privilege, white supremacy. These are big, lofty, complex topics that are not going to be easy to measure. But if we're out there measuring prosperity, happiness, emotions, well-being, life, you know, all, all this kind of thing, we can also surely measure these other things. I mean, you're, you're the lawyer, so you can tell me if I'm, if I'm full of crap on this one. But I think the fact that much of the world is not actually turned into data reflects the biases of who's collecting the data. So I do a lot of work in, uh, with companies on like performance data and evaluating talent and saying, who are we going to hire? We're going to do data-driven hiring. And what's the data that they're looking at to decide who to hire? They're looking at data on where someone went to school and mm -hmm. what GPA they got and what they majored in. And that is very good data of someone's socioeconomic background of their racial identity of their gender. And you can predict a lot about a person based on those things. So mm. wouldn't it be amazing if we had data on someone's skill set or the diversity of their experiences or the types of challenges that they've overcome or instances where they brought together a group of people who disagreed? We could have data on those things. We just don't. And so an error of exclusion is all the stuff we haven't measured yet. Mm. That's the most dangerous error. No, that's the most that, dangerous bias. <laughs> the most <laughs> that's the takeaway. I I then yeah. that's it's so interesting because it it goes to I I said before recording I listened to several podcasts and heard some you talk in some very high level conversations that I I was I was trying teacher slow down trying to take notes <laughs> um but uh it was it was just fascinating to me because it, you really can take at least this part of data science and really just the concept of the idea that you're excluding certain voices from certain things and you, you mm -hmm. really quickly get into this idea of, you could go a lot of ways, but immediately comes to mind, you know, critical race theory and exactly. we're now excluding certain things from the, the vernacular. Mm -hmm. So we don't even measure it, talk about it, conceive of it. How does that change our next step? How does that change what we proceed next to? And maybe that's exactly why it's such a controversial thing because some people don't want to get there, but. Right. Right. That's that's for my other podcast, uh, Joe's Joe's thoughts. Um, social justice. Social justice. Social justice. Social justice. I like that. Social, social justice. justice. Woo. I like yeah. it. Um, so, all right. So, I, what I what I'm hearing you say, Andrea, is that um, pie graphs and charts are the best way to communicate. <laughs> Complex it's not data. Pie, pie chart. Forget it. Yeah, I'm not listening. Well, <laughs> is there a pie chart that you can use? If it's about pie, <laughs> I think that's not even something that's original to me. I think someone was like, unless you're measuring pie, I don't want to see a pie chart. Okay, so we we know that there is a problematic way that, and and it's probably obvious that companies talk about data because they want to appear. Um, there's an infallibility about their product or about their position or their service because look. Data says it, so you should do it. Yeah. The number of hand creams that I've tried based on data-driven companies. Yeah, no. data-driven hand creams <laughs> yeah. is uh, the scourge of humanity. <laughs> uh, but pretend that we're a podcast that has a lot of people that listen to uh, music but maybe don't know a whole lot about data science. How can we talk yeah. about data differently? What mm. can we do that helps it become maybe either able to see through some of the morass or, or to think about it in a way that makes us less biased or more open to new ideas? 
I think that's a lovely question. And I, I've been wondering the same because when you think about data science, you know, there's a lot of resources. There's like whole YouTube channels about how to code and you could go to general assembly or code Academy or wherever, and like learn how to do bits and pieces, but the broader kind of just appreciation for what it is and thinking critically about what data actually is, I would say a great place to start is to actually look at some data sets and great places to start. If you don't, if you're kind of agnostic on the topic, um, there's a website called our world in data and it's pretty simple data sets that are like here's gdp and population and starvation rates and here's you know air mm. pollution and education levels and it's a it's a lot of you know data sets with just a handful of variables they tend to be cross-national but they do a good job of showing you that it's it's literally just numbers that some people wrote down and then i really recommend that once you get a hold of a data set you can look up the world happiness report it's like literally world happiness dot report and their 2021 study is coming out like any day now. You can tune in live and watch the scientists. I'm going to be there. Uh, <laughs> but you can look at the actual data set and you can do what's very important, which is read something called the code book, which is often listed as like a data dictionary or a data appendix. I know this doesn't sound fun, but it actually is really interesting because you can go in and say, well, how did they turn this stuff into numbers? And it's, it's more readable than you think. Like mm -hmm. this world happiness survey, they say, well, we called all these people and we said, imagine your life on a scale from one to 10, 10 is the top of a ladder, which is the best life you could ever live. And one is the worst life. What do you think your life is? And that's how they measured happiness. And now, you know, and so if someone says, well, Denmark's the happiest, you're like, well, no, Denmark's just standing on top of this weird ladder, according to <laughs> self-reported data and whoever bothered to answer the phone. Right. And that doesn't mean it's garbage and doesn't mean you throw that information away, but you're much more informed about what those numbers actually mean. Like a number is just shorthand for a whole mm. bunch of other stuff. And so I would, you know, the World Bank, IMF, UN, they all put out tons and tons and tons of data. You can go look at it and in particular, go look at the source and see where it came from and just get your head around the fact that it's, you could create a data set right now. You know, there's nothing magical about it. Mm -hmm. There's also a book that's probably easier uh, than digging around data sets called Data Feminism, which is pretty good. Uh, I don't know it well and I haven't read the whole thing. Uh, another person recently read, mentioned a book to me called Queer Data that just came out uh basically making the case that there's almost no data on lgbtqia plus lives so we don't really know anything because no mm -hmm. one's bothered to study it or if you want to study it it's not considered real topics and blah 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 uh i don't mean blah 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 in a dismissive way just like in a there's a lot of problems there kind of way there's a book ca called models something like Model Thinking for the Social Scientist by March and Lave. It's like a PDF that you can find on Amazon. <laughs> no one's going to find any of these books. There's another one called Model Thinking, which is how to think about evidence, but it's not about that. So it doesn't really exist. So stay tuned. I'm going to write something down at some point and I'll send you a link. <laughs> I, I love that. And and yeah. I will say we've spawned a lot of good ideas. Yeah. And I just had one. Uh, I think you should tell your class. Maybe you're, Maybe this is more of an... I don't know if it's an intro level or your top level class because mm. I know you teach a couple classes, uh, but I think you need to have like a self-help line because what the listeners Ooh. to the Real Wolf Record Club mm. just heard Andy Rhea Jones Roy tell everyone is go find data and do something with it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I found yeah. the report. Here it is. And then they can call and say, help me understand this. Yeah. <laughs> there yeah, it is. That's well, a good idea. If you had to name that self-help line, what would you name it? Data busters or something. Who are you going to call? 
<laughs> Who are you going to call? The data busters? Data, data, that sounds like to January 6th Trump territory. The data busters. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like that. Data so busters? <laughs> yeah. But, uh, I, yeah. Research squad or something like the, that. Oh, man. It's it's like talking to my dial mom. Dial a data. Squad. Dial. Data dial. <laughs> data. Dial a data. Data line. Yeah, data line. Data line. Data line. I love it. All right. Well, I I love that. I I love hearing this idea though that there is something that we can do, and it's it's. I think a lot of it's become familiar and comfortable with this idea that everything isn't so. It is complex, but that's a complex world, and so if we're going to make broad, complex claims about the world, we should be prepared to to grapple with the numbers and and the information that's out there. which of course brings me naturally to um, circus performing. How did yes. you start that? <laughs> <laughs> I was I was like, are we gonna go to the Beatles? Where are we gonna go from that? Like, right right to circus performing. We right can't. We right. have to go to that. You have to we tell have to us about it. that. That's so that's so interesting. We have to go to it. So I got into it in grad school when I was going through the crisis that I described earlier, where I accidentally realized I had enrolled in this like very intense math program Mm -hmm. that I did not intend to enroll in, but it was like too intimidated to drop out of. And I found circus, uh, in a, in a dark time, I was at the grocery store. This is so much more detail than you want, but I was walking through the grocery store by myself and I was like avoiding that working on my dissertation. Horrible. Yeah. And I'm like reading the community bulletin boards. Like that's the level yeah. I was at. Like what's what's going on in the community at this grocery store? Like, that's where I was in grad school. Take and a dog this, walker just things. Yeah. Like, you know, learn piano from this like pedophile. Like, it's not good. <laughs> not good. Got, got it. But there was a flyer for something called the Detroit Flyhouse Flyers or something like that. And it was mm-hmm. a circus school. And I was like, that's what I'm doing. And I reserved a class that weekend and drove and went and it was amazing. And I never stopped after that. But I I mean, I don't want in grad school, you were you were like an adult. Yeah, you didn't. I mean, you just picked it up as an adult. I had done some dance growing up, but I didn't start dancing until I was 14, which is way too late to do anything. So I always liked movement and was mad that I started too late to be a dancer and all that. And so by the time I got to circus, I had then done yoga. I did. I spent two years on the University of Michigan synchronized swimming team. I don't know if that's like where you recognize me from. But, Definitely. Uh, I did that <laughs> and Obviously. I did figure skating. So I was always doing some kind of stuff. And this was just like the one that spoke to me the most and you basically yeah I do trapeze mostly dance trapeze and aerial hoop and there's also like aerial silks like you probably see that uh as well and uh I like silks but I'm bad at tying knots and if you tie knots wrong you die so I was just like forget it I need a bar I can't handle it <laughs> what I'm yeah. hearing I mean the, the thread that I hear there is um it's not too late for yeah. me yeah to circus is that how you is that is they use that as a verb to circus I think you do circus. You do circus. Yeah. Got it. Yeah, it's not too late. That's if for you, another. Yeah, in the, if you or any of your listeners are in the New York area, I can recommend tons of places for all levels. And it's really fun. It's really good exercise. I honestly started just because it was the only place where I didn't feel bad about myself because it was a really supportive environment and no one cared about my dissertation or how bad I was at math. And over the years, it's just been something I, I've, I've tried to quit. Like people try to quit drugs and bad relationships. And I 
couldn't so we're stuck with it yeah well i appreciate you recommending that um i just need to decide whether the intense pain i always feel in my chest is um heart attack or heartburn so once that's over i'm circusing okay. for sure Perfect. yeah yeah <laughs> uh, and that ladies and gentlemen is andrea jones roy our guest it is now time for our favorite interview segment it is ched talk Andrea, are you ready for Ched Talk here on the Real Wolf Record Club? I have never been more ready. I like I, I like the sound of it. I'm here Don't for it. Don't know what it is. I only Got agreed it. because I was like, is there a Ched Talk? And they said yes, and I said, I'll be there. As yeah. long as there's a Ched Talk, I'm <laughs> yeah. there. All right, it's time for Ched Talk here on the Real Wolf Record Club. Question one. Which phrase is more irritating? Data-driven or any word paired with hack? Oh, that's a tough question. I'm going to say, I'm going to say data driven. Data driven. What's so irritating about it? We drive data. <laughs> but hack oh. is really annoying. I, if you had you said anything else, it would have been an easier option. <laughs> that's really tough. Ooh. <laughs> Those poor souls in your entry level class who oh, say bad. something like data driven. Like oh, F. Tough. Literally. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, what's your favorite beetle? Question two. Your favorite? Who is your favorite beetle? I should say. This is going to be probably uh, unimpressive, but I got to go Paul McCartney. Oof. Yeah. Well, we will I definitely. I should say John Lennon if I took music seriously. I should say George Harrison if I were a remotely spiritual person. For a long time growing up, I said Ringo because I sort of felt bad for him and I liked that he was goofy. <laughs> but it's definitely Paul. I mean. He was so hot. When I got my hair cut short, it doesn't look like it, but I was like, I want to look like Paul and let it be. <laughs> Give me the but, Paul McCartney, please. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, we will definitely get into that. Uh, if you, you dig into some of the earlier episodes, you will know that I'm in a very one-sided public uh, feud with Sir Paul McCartney over his Are you? Uh -oh. unfortunate comments about the Rolling Stones recently. Um, but we will <laughs> dig into all that later on in the episode okay, if he ever right. returns my calls. Um, <laughs> question <laughs> he three. Me, actually, I'm here to represent the McCartney estate. Yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> yeah. um, well, speaking of estates and Paul McCartney's estates, uh, is Paul dead? And if mm. not, how do you know if a record played backwards told me otherwise? That's a data question. Can't trust the data. Yeah. Mm. Uh, it was the, your data-driven conclusion about Paul's death, I would say, is, is ill-informed. I don't think Paul is dead because I went to one of his concerts maybe 10 years ago with my parents in Maryland, and it could have been uh, an animatronic guy. I was pretty far away, <laughs> but I was also on his mailing list for a while until I couldn't take it. And if it's, a, if it's not a human sending email, then who's sending email? Then who's email? sending email? Who's sending that it? Is, so he's that gotta is, be alive. That is fair. Um, <laughs> Question four here on the Real Wolf Record Club. The scariest circus performing accident or almost accident that totally turned out okay. I don't want to hear anything about broken bones. Yeah. Like the close okay. call that turned out totally yeah. okay. I worked at a circus-themed nightclub in Shanghai for two and a half years. And I was on this trapeze, and it was a very, like, illegal operation. <laughs> And there were no permits. Like, the I circus inspector hadn't come by. They don't even have the words. Like people, there was burlesque and they would come in, the police would come in and they'd say, tell the, I mean, their English wasn't great, but they would say, tell the performers they can't just wear coins on their nipples, you know, instead of pasties. Like if we were not, no one knew what was going on. And I had this like trapeze that I would sit on and it was on a little motor and it would go, da -da 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 -da, 
like across to the main stage and then I'd prance off and like wave some stuff around. And I had a brilliant idea to sit on the trapeze and hold these like flares, sort of fireworky stuff. And I was wearing these awesome latex pants. I don't know if you've ever worn latex pants, but it's like- Mine are at the all cleaners. The yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, you're wearing them right now, but they're these like really hard to put on, very meltable pants. And so I'm sitting on the trapeze and I'm thinking, I suggested it to my director. I was like, this is gonna be so fun. I'll sit, I'll hold the fire. I'll, and But I'm holding the ropes and holding the flares. <laughs> the thing starts moving and I'm like, oh God. And of course, when it moves, the flares get tangled up in the ropes. And I was like, I'm gonna fall off because I'm about to burn these ropes. So I took the flares and put them down far away from the ropes where my legs are and didn't feel a thing because it's thick latex until <laughs> I got off stage and saw that they had completely like melted to my skin and it took forever to peel off and it was really horrible. And I was like, oh, I could have definitely died. I was wearing all this hairspray. Had I put it up towards my head rather oh. than towards like it would have been way worse. So I was fine, not an ounce of pain, ruined my pants. And there's a little singe on the trapeze, but that was it. Wow. Yeah. And if I something down the whole place. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and think of where we'd be with data science at this point. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> we'd all be enjoying it a lot more. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, speaking of data science, the last question here okay. on the real wolf record club in five words or less save the world with data science. You don't know that much. Ooh. Ooh, you Is don't know that. Enough? I don't know. That's totally it. I think right. I think that I'm gonna check the numbers. <laughs> You win! Chet Talk here on the Real Wolf Record Club. Uh, that is Andrea Jones-Roy. They are our guest here on the Real Wolf Record Club. We're going to take a very quick break, and we will be back to discuss Abbey Road by the Beatles here on the Real Wolf Record Club. Welcome back to the Real Wolf Record Club. Uh, we are here talking with our friend Andrea Jones-Roy, about to talk about The Beatles' Abbey Road. I'm going to start. I want to turn it over before we dig right into the album and, and ask a question I asked of Andrea. Ben, Hannah, your favorite Beatle. There's four to choose from. Your favorite Beatle. This is sort of a controversial question, as I'm finding. Uh, I'm going to have to go with George on this one. Ooh. I love when Hannah comes in with her NPR coffee. Yeah. I'm going to go with George. Yeah. <laughs> George, what do you like about George? I know you like that one song by him that he had. Well, I got my mindset. You like that one? I do love some 80s George Harrison. <laughs> also a good album cover, Cloud Nine. Um, part of the reason why I did choose George is because I do like his solo material. Hmm. Um, I enjoy his solo work. I tend to um, gravitate towards some of the George songs more than, you know, some of the others. I just, George kind of seems like the more like mysterious. He's like the quiet beetle. He's more mysterious. I just kind of dig his vibe, I guess. <laughs> vibe. George Harrison vibe. I like it. Yeah. Ben, your favorite beetle. Uh, this is getting to like our favorite song versus best song, right? So. Um, I'm not going to pick a best Beatle. I'm going to pick a favorite Beatle. I'm going to go with uh, the same thing Andrea said, McCartney. And I, I'm i going to go with McCartney 
because he's just been prolific and i and i appreciate all of his contribution to music and i i i stand by his opinion as it relates to the Rolling Stones. Oh. <laughs> Shots fired. Just kidding. There's I... room. There's more room for the feud if you want it. <laughs> um, that's well. That's that's fascinating though. That to, to talk about George is great. Ringo's great. But I I think we would be lying to ourselves if we didn't say that the the creative axis that this band has always tilted on is. Paul and John. Um, there's a great podcast. If you, speaking of which, we talked about Hannah and a soothing NPR voice. There is a British podcast called "I Am the Egg Pod," and, uh, and it yes. is very <laughs> devoted to the Beatles. But the the host and the guests have the most soothing voices Ooh. and the nicest British accents, and oh. they talk about just all things Beatles and we're going to talk about this song today it's just like oh I'm in heaven it's so nice to listen to and um, some of the things all night okay done right, yeah. yeah it's fabulous it's really really good and some of the things that they talk about uh, at least in regards to Abbey Road is is that this personality uh, creative axis kind of became a split um, in a very mm. very prominent way that John and Paul, if you find any interviews about Abbey Road, um, there was an interviewer who said, uh, who made a comment about a certain song that Paul had sings on. And they said, well, Paul, you sing these lyrics and they're very passe. That might have been something you'd say 10 years ago. And Paul is very quick to say, those are John Johnny Boy lyrics. Mm. I was like, that's kind of not a nice thing to say. But mm -hmm. John will say the same things about, you know, the song Maxwell Silver Hammer. He'll mm -hmm. say, you know, why are we doing these children's songs and things? I mean, so very clear that the two um centripetal centripetal i'm gonna write that down the two centripetal <laughs> centripetal <laughs> forces that, that what i'm getting at is the strength the the, yeah. the the power the energy that creatively drove this band um at least on the front half of this mm -hmm. record you can hear john songs and you can hear paul songs mm -hmm. and you know them when you hear them um apparently they were at one point negotiating very business-like well john gets this many songs so paul gets this many songs hmm. and just like it became very i don't want to say contentious because i don't we don't all know that much about how they actually work but you know that these two the tension and ben will hmm. quote it as the the joe uh theory of great albums which is this just intense pressure pushing on it usually creates a diamond um hmm. joe's diamond theory my diamond nice theory. theory. Uh, Contents under pressure make but, good music. But for a variety of reasons, I think that axis, it, it'd be hard. George is great. Ringo's great. Um, for me, it, it was, I don't know how I wouldn't pick one of those two, and I definitely yeah. wasn't picking Paul McCartney. Uh, I'm a John <laughs> Lennon guy. Yeah, uh, John, right. The John songs are so strong here. But um, that, that kind of leads in. It leads into the favorite, favorite song. Um, okay. Let's talk about the favorite song on this album, because if you're picking a favorite song, chances are it's very influenced by one of those four, because they all had their songs. Right. Um, Andrea, your favorite yeah. song on Abbey Road, what was it and why? So I don't know if this counts as a favorite song, but the medley is my favorite for sure. Woo. Yeah, the long one. Is that one song? I don't know, right? I think so, because they don't stop. Make your case, but, professor. Yeah, so I'm going to make my case. <laughs> so measurement is how we turn the world into data. And what is a song, if not something that oh. we decide begins and ends with a whatever, right? So it's one song. <laughs> I'm so saying good. it's one song. That's what I've decided. 
The medley. Wow. Yeah. And, and I mean, the B side of the Abbey Road album is far and away my favorite music album of all time. It's, it's the most informative on my life. I grew up as a huge Beatles fan. I know that's not very interesting or unusual, but it was my entire personality when I was in middle school. I was obsessed with the Beatles. I grew up around when all the, their work got like remastered and stuff. And so mm-hmm. I sort of was part of that. And I'd, my walls were covered in Beatles posters. And the first time I heard the second half of the Abbey Road album, and in particular, the medley, I was just like, like in middle school and I was just like, you can do that with music. You can just not end a song and go into another song. And the songs barely have to do with anything with one another. And sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. And then the end in preparation for this, I should thank you all in preparation for, for this recording. I played the album and I played the B side a whole bunch of times. I played the, the whole thing though. Cause I was like, I gotta listen. I wanted to go straight to B, but I, st- I played the whole thing. And I was like, Maxwell silver hammer was really tough to get through. <laughs> middle school i thought it was funny but i was like this is not a song uh but the b-side it's like it's like kind of fun it's kind of silly there's capitalism how long do i have to talk about this but i'll I'll wrap it up but then at the end it's tragic Mm -hmm. we you know it's not the last album that came out but it's the last one that they recorded and this you know uh it just gets very very sad at the end and like you're carrying a burden and you have a long way to go and there's like a lot and you, you hear like these expectations and then I would I would tack her majesty on at the very end as kind of part of that medley, even though it sort of mm-hmm. lives on its own. And it's just it's just a weird, beautiful, solemn, strange thing. And I think it captures a lot of what I like about the Beatles, which is how weird they are. But mm-hmm. it's also very listenable. And I've been humming it ever since. Uh, and it also just captures how sad I am that they broke up before I was born. It's very selfish. Yeah. Well, and that that's something we've definitely touched on here uh, a lot is, you know, we obviously you know, my feud with Paul McCartney as yes. if rich British white guys need some kid in the Twin Cities to defend their, their honor. Um, yeah. <laughs> but but I, we joke Somewhere about that. Somewhere he's like, what did Joe say? Yeah. What did he say? <laughs> yeah. um, but it, it's really just, it's, there, there's, you talk about, you know, there's the album and you listen to it and then the context or the extra information mm-hmm. that you know that this was the last one they recorded and that, you know, there's a picture of John Lennon with Sean, you know, as a little boy. And, you mm. know, that um, or I believe it was Sean. But, you know, you know that he doesn't have long to live. And that's yeah. really sad. And I, what I love about that is that music like the Beatles or any music, it, it can evoke such a response and connection without it ever really always being about the music. I mean, of course, mm-hmm. it's got to like the music, but it's about it's kind of like eating a great meal in a that becomes so good be also because of what else you attach to it who you're with where you're at when you're doing it um yeah the food's got to be good too but it's also that full experience and i think this necessary but not sufficient condition for happiness (laughs) (laughs) sorry it's horrible i know you're right and i was thinking i mean i don't know how how interesting this is to to hear about but i was like in i was listening to i had like a long exhausting miserable day it was fine but it was whatever and then I was like, oh, I have like fun homework, which is I'm going to listen to the album because I haven't listened in a really long time and I wanted it to be fresh in my mind. And so for the last half hour before I joined this call, I was like replaying that the B-side and sitting on my couch and I was just like, oh, I feel like I'm in middle school. I feel like I'm 11. Uh, 
And there's all these interesting studies, I think, that I heard on NPR. Maybe Hannah was was doing the, <laughs> the hosting of the show. Yeah. That you become yourself when you're around 11 and 12. Like, it's when you actually start to have a personality. You understand your own identity separate from the people around you and your friends and this and that. And the Beatles were very formative. And I haven't sat down and listened to that album in years. Mm. I just know that it's awesome. And so I just sat there and I was like transported back to my bedroom with my lava lamps and my, I had one lava lamp and I'm not going to overstate this. <laughs> Andrea, yeah. They're, they're... Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, I, I do have to ask though. I mean, what, and it's not that, it's not like that's that different or anything, but I think we're generally the same age and the Beatles had to be a little bit of a throwback. How did you get into the mm -hmm. Beatles? Was it, did you have, you know, parents who were into them or friends or family? It was my mother's fault, as as is true for most problems in my life. Uh, yes, my mother was very into the Beatles. She grew up, you know, at the height of Beatlemania, all that stuff. And so she got me into the Beatles when I was, I remember being in like third grade and she, she would play like, you know, Help and, and Hard Day's Night, kind of more upbeat stuff. And uh, I mean, Help is very sad, but the song is fun. Mm -hmm. uh, and we would like dance around. And so I was just into it. And then I kind of got into it that was how it was introduced to me. And then once I kind of got into the the lore and the mythology around the Beatles and all of that, I, I collected all the albums and all the everything. I have millions of books about what was going on with the Beatles and how they formed and their origin. And I just got mm -hmm. very into it. Like, I guess people my age were into sports or something. I don't know, I was into the Beatles. Like that's all mm -hmm. I did was I, I, every now and again, I would branch out to the who. So, uh, but I really only listened to Tommy. I didn't really listen to much else by the who. So mm -hmm. that was like when I mixed it up. <laughs> yeah well and that's i mean we that's the other thing we've always talked about is the the you know we several of us had older brothers that we stole music mm. from and just got into it at least a taste of it and knew that was our introduction and yeah. from there that's your life sentences usually you're going to find something to connect to um yeah. and you're speaking to a pinball wizard here so there we go you're right. you're, you're talking my language <laughs> here we go yeah I, I do have to say uh yeah ben does his a pinball wizard is that thing still running you have one you in your know, house? Yes, unfortunately, the Oof. screen has gone gone dark. So, oh. listeners, if there's any pinball machine repair experts <laughs> that Start want to throw something me. in the comments yeah. or that Start live in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area and are willing to do house calls. You should well, make a custom Real Wolf over. Record Club pinball machine. There you go. I, I like that, Great but idea. I do want to caution you, Ben. Um I, I think that's a really good setup for a really creepy serial killer movie. Like, yeah. Pinball repair wizard who makes house calls. Like <laughs> referrals only. <laughs> referrals only. <laughs> yeah. Where do I put the rope? I don't know. Get out of here. Yeah, Ben's gonna die. All right. <laughs> Ben's gonna die basically. <laughs> okay. Uh, it was really nice to meet you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, anyways, uh, that yeah, I love that. I love that. That's interesting. I, I I'm gonna say I did not expect the medley. That's an interesting really? and inspired choice. Not, Am I allowed to ask what you expected? I think, well, the front half, I think, is just, it's filled. And by the front half, I mean um, from Come Together through probably Here Comes the Sun. Yeah. I, I just think there's so many of the the complete songs in one spot as opposed to they put these things together to create that mm -hmm. little narrative. Uh, so that's that's where I would have gone. But okay. Um, okay. I love that. Uh Ben, let's go to you. Your favorite song on this album, Abbey Road by the Beatles. I know I said that McCartney's my favorite, Beatle, but that's because I was forced to choose <laughs> under duress. 
<laughs> because my answer would have been I like the Beatles. Like I I like the band. Mm-hmm. And the the individuals alone I just don't think are as good or as compelling. I like the Beatles. But in any event, I picked a Lennon song. <laughs> <laughs> it's I Want You, She's So Heavy. Yeah. I think it's it's just a groove. It's a true rock song. And apparently the birth of doom metal. Whoa. Well, though I it read, had to be. The Beatles invented everything. So, right. I mean, duh. Exactly. <laughs> and uh but I just I love the the moodiness and this is one of the things where I've I've listened to this album quite a bit, but I again listened to the album as Andrea did to really kind of get myself into the mood and and prepared for our our discussion today. But I, I noticed that there's this dynamic of the guitar is hitting all the same notes as the vocals. But like all of the notes that's being that are being sung are also being played on the guitar and they hmm. just match up. And so I, I just thought, hey, this is really like a really interesting dynamic. It almost feels like there's the two parts, you know, it's I want you. So there's the two parts. It almost is like the guitar and the vocals were, were talking to each other and it's just kind of like this lusty lyrics, you know. And then I, I just in my mind I thought, what is this like some kind of juju eyeball exchange? But I just thought that that, that guitar and and the solo and the groove of this song and how it just feels a little bit more like heavy Beatles. I, I enjoyed that a lot. Mm. For me, I agree. I think this is the song that I that drew my attention more most frequently. Although I will say the mm. song I hum the most is Octopus's Garden. Oh. <laughs> I just hum it all the time. But um, yeah, the, that's fair. Actually, it, it's that a might it's show a, up in my brain a lot. Yeah, yeah, it's a pretty little song. But this song, I, I mean, I don't want to get political on it, but um, I, I always wonder about you know there's so much uh ire drawn and people say well the influence of yoko ono on john lennon apparently there's some story about he literally installed a bed Mm -hmm. in the studio Mm -hmm. while they're recording and he and yoko for the three days which the other beatles also said the maxwell silver hammer session was the worst session they ever did because it took three (laughs) days on that song alone and apparently yoko and john are sitting there heckling from the side saying what are we doing on the flip side, there's then this song where apparently, so if what we know, you know, the uh, one thing Beatle fan will always tell you, and in this case, they're probably right, how innovative they were in their recording. They used a Moog synthesizer. They used the sound table that helped give this album really crisp, clear, full sound. Um, apparently, at the end, where the white noise just rises, John is, the story goes, in there screaming at the sound text, more 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 to the point where the sound is getting so much and there's paul sitting in the the i guess it'd be the the sound room is that what it's called ben you're a producer the sound room back with the text and he's sitting there his head in his hands and he looks up and there's ringo and there's uh george and there's john just all swaying to this vibe that is creating and the song is fading out and it's fading out and ringo yells or hey ringo uh john yells cut it here cut it here and then it stops and there's theories about what the symbolism was there but i always wonder about people point to yoko and they say yoko is did this she did that um this is a song that john wrote obsessed with her with his love and in the i don't say obsessed in a bad way he just was so in love with her and it's got 15 words in it (laughs) that's all it talks about and it's so I guess I would point out in my opening statement, 
for anyone who thinks Yoko Ono had a negative effect on the band, you have to put in one pile whatever you might think, and then in the other pile you have to say, this song. Because I don't know if, I mean, Ben, ben the groove is just like sultry. Somebody's in love with somebody. And I it, lusty it, is it was lusty. My note. There you go. Yeah, mm-hmm. lusty, and it's and that's what it is. I mean, it's there's a, there's a whole lot of weirdo lusty stuff you can talk about that John and Yoko were talking about, but it it's just I don't know something. She gave him something that helped him create this song, and mm-hmm. this song is a great song. Go Yoko, uh, Hannah. Uh, what what was your favorite song? I think I know what it is, but I'm not sure. I'm hopping right on Ben's bandwagon and going with I Want You. Um, not to repeat. <laughs> That's my bandwagon. <laughs> well, Ben's the front. I'm the ne- So, all right. You yeah. can be the caboose. All right, I'll be the train. caboose. <laughs> <laughs> and just to add, basically, I really loved it. It was like super moody and like bluesy and almost like a little funky with that guitar. I just, and I also loved <laughs> that the song, when you find a song you really like and it happens to be a longer track. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's the best because the song keeps going. Well, let me, let's, all right, let's add this here then. Let's say, um, because we are so monochromatic in three of our four choices, what was the second? Because <laughs> there's a lot of close calls in this album. What was the, se- like, if you, if you weren't to pick the one you picked, what would you have picked? Andrea? I'm thinking about something or Oh Darling. Like, they're all kind of, the whole first half is kind of moody and mm-hmm. maybe Oh Darling. I kind of like the intensity of it. I don't know that I would ever sing it, but I like how kind of raw it sounds. Oh, that is, okay. You're, all your fans and listeners are now going to be like, okay, let's go out to a karaoke bar. Andrea yeah. is singing Oh Darling. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Yeah, it's, I mean, I just feel like there's a lot of that where you could go one, you know, Ben, you talked about how diverse the album is and different sounds and you can find something, something for everyone. Uh, Ben, what was the song? If you had to, if you didn't pick, I want you, what would you have picked? Joe, you know, you know me though. I, I've always picked a one, a one B one C one. I've, I've held back. I got my playlist segment so that I could talk about more songs on the album, but uh, come together was mm. very close second. I know it's another Lennon song, and I, I talked about how I like McCartney the best, but I, I like him for his body of work and his contributions and not microcosmically on this album, but come together. The bass line for me is what sells this song. I just like the the overall presentation of I Want You just, just, just a hair better. Mm. But uh, come together is also just phenomenal. Uh, Hannah? Um, second song would probably be something. Mm. Nice. Okay. Mm. Know. That one's a little nostalgic for me. I, for some reason, I feel like I remember hearing this, like, you know, on the radio when I was younger, if my mm. parents would have, you know, some oldies station on. And I just remember hearing that song. And, um, so it feels it feels a little nostalgic and and takes me back a little bit and that I kind of clung to that one for for that reason. Mm. I thought you were going middle school dance with that setup for mm. sure. <laughs> oh. Yeah, it's a hit middle school. My middle school wouldn't have played that. I don't. Think. Yeah, I either. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking like lava lamps and loving the Beatles and like yeah, wherever you are, uh, that that's that'd be a cool middle school dance if they played the Beatles, but. Um, yeah, mine was Here Comes the Sun. I just think okay. it's such a pretty song, and that pairing is so strong. Um, 
Well, let's let's do this. We've got just a little bit left here. Uh, let's turn to Ben now uh, for our favorite segment. It's called "Put It on a Playlist," where we are all forced to take a walk through Ben's brain. Ben, put it on a playlist. And a playlist here, Joe. I'm going to take you inside the brain a little bit here because I had some things that hit the cutting room floor. One of them was doom metal. I talked about it with uh, I Want You, She's So Heavy, allegedly the birth of doom metal. I kind of went down that doom metal path where you take the first step into Black Sabbath and you're like, okay, I can get behind this. Then it just kind of goes to a different place than, than I enjoy in my music. I didn't want to make a whole playlist of doom metal. That one got cut. <laughs> then I thought, hey, Octopus's Garden, we could do underwater songs. You know, mm. Bring under in the, the Little Mermaid, Under, under the, the Sea. sea. Yeah, it's... <laughs> but I couldn't feature Octopus's Garden from this body of work <laughs> as the one song that I pick out um, and, and kind of feature on a playlist. So what did I end up with? That's just nonsense. That's the name of the playlist. These are songs with lyrics that sound like pure nonsense because in large part they are. And it makes you wonder, did I miss something? Is the data set flawed? Nice. <laughs> or am I just not cool enough to know what that lyric means? That's Maybe it's a little bit of both. So what am I putting me. in the playlist? I'm putting Come Together by the Beatles. He got Juju Eyeball. Mm. No one knows. Not sure what you know, that is. Wait, you know what? I encourage listeners, by the way, look into this because they have some very interesting interviews where they actually talk about making stuff up with the intention that people would believe it's a thing. So, mm. And that's it, it, that's a it's a common thread of the Beatles. So there's a couple Beatles songs, actually. I'm, I'm violating some of my own rules, and I've got a couple Beatles songs on this album, or on this album, on this playlist. But also from Come Together, he got Walrus Gumboot. I don't think I own a <laughs> pair of those, but they sound cool. So what are we else? What else are we looking at on this playlist? So we've got Beck Loser, a classic, an absolute classic in nonsense lyrics. Dog food stalls with the beefcake pantyhose. Sounds like I should order that at a nice restaurant. <laughs> and then we've talked about this before on this podcast. Our stat man, who is on maternity paternity leave uh, right now, Scatman John, with the song Scatman. Skeet up 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 up. The stat man, he's he's making an appearance tonight, even though he's not here. Uh, we've got Phil Collin, Phil Collins, Susudio, totally made up word, mm. sounds cool. And then finally, one of my absolute favorite songs as a child, still is to this day. Again, the Beatles. We're bringing it back from the start to the finish. We're coming to the end of this preview, and it's "I Am the Walrus." Goo 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 Yep. Mm. And that is put it on a playlist. A reminder, you can go to realwolfrecordclub.com and find all of our playlists. You can also find us on Spotify where you have all these playlists. I'm going to I'm going to warn you uh you get pretty deep into Ben's brain and and you start to the groan just like, "Oh god, this guy, he put that on there." Uh, it's <laughs> worth the visceral reaction he induces. And that is put it on a playlist. We're going to take a very quick break and come back here to give us our rating on Abbey Road by the Beatles with Andrea Jones Roy. This is the Real Wolf Record Club. This is Andrea Jones Roy and you are listening to the Real Wolf Record Club. 
Welcome back to The Real Wolf Record Club. We are here on the home stretch of our episode with Andrea Jones-Roy, where we are talking about Abbey Road by the Beatles. Uh, this is the part of the show where we give it our patented ranking. Uh, record ranking, I guess you'd say. We're record collectors. We hope you are, too. Maybe you're streaming it. That's good. Maybe you... I've heard that CDs are coming back. I guess I don't I don't believe it. Uh, my sweet little nephew, or niece, excuse me, who's now in college, uh, Hannah and I were going to be cool aunt and uncle once and give a CD to her for Christmas, and we did. And then she said to us, what would we even play it on? Mm. And it broke my heart because I realized, <laughs> number one, I gave a crappy gift, and number two, how old I am that the generations behind us don't own CD players. Well, now I don't either, so I don't believe they're making a comeback. But but our, our scale thinks of records in that sense, uh, buying records, one that, you know, it's so bad you don't want it, you're going to bury it. Or it's not terrible, but you don't want to own it. You're going to borrow it. Or you're going to buy it. you got to own it. Or you're going to play it so much, you want to buy it again. One to stock, one to rock. So we're going to give it our patented uh, ranking. We're going to start with our guest, Andrea Jones-Roy. How do you rank Abbey Road by the Beatles? I mean, it's an easy four for me. I have the CD at home. I have it on whatever, my phone version of it. And literally today I was like, can I buy the original version? Because this is 2019 remastered, remixed. And I was like, I don't want this. I want the one that came out when I was in middle school and came out and I can't find it. But I was, as I was thinking about this show, I was literally trying to buy it again, like a third time. <laughs> so yeah, buy it again, four, easy. Mm, easy. Uh, Hannah, how do you rank the album? This is a solid buy it for me. Um, I this is a great album it's super solid the reason it's not a buy it again for me is because the um the medley is i like the beatles but i'm not like hardcore and mm. i feel like all those little like nuggets are just like treats for like the super fan to appreciate and i'm just not at a level where like i really get it mm. i think but it is such a good album and i can see why people regard it so well um, and why it's considered basically such a masterpiece. So I'm, I'm definitely gonna, I'm gonna keep listening. I'm gonna buy it. Mm. Ben, you're the Beatles guy. How do you rank this album? I, I have no clue what, what you're about to say. <laughs> Listeners don't either, and they may be surprised here. I'm not typically one to say we gotta buy this one again, but it's one that I own, and I'm gonna give it that ranking. I'm gonna give this a buy it again, and it's because of this last process of really dissecting this album. It's one I've listened to a lot and you'll play, but I got such more of an appreciation by just listening to this thing over and over again. And to Andrea's experience, the medley, it's not even something I really knew about. I just thought, this is cool. These songs transition really well. And you dig into the album and you start researching more about it. You understand kind of this whole process. But for me, it's something that is so diverse, sonically diverse, diverse in taste. I could put this on for my kids, for my parents, for guests, as background music, as featured music. I just, it's, it's so diverse in that sense that you could kind of use it anyway, any, anywhere, anytime. And I really, really love that section of track four through track eight. So it's, oh, darling to because and it's my favorite part of this album because it features each of those individual artists 
McCartney, Starr, Lennon, Harrison, and then it brings it back together with all of them. They're all credited on Because. And that song has these just great harmonies, and everybody just kind of feels together after having just each had their own like little display. And uh, it, and I also liked how kind of Octopus's Garden, it was silly, and I think that's kind of the point. And it makes the Beatles feel a lot more accessible. You know, they the, you know Lennon was famously quoted as saying that they were loved more than Jesus. I maybe butchered the quote there, but. Um, you know, they had this like deity status and, and that was like the beat, the whole beat of mania thing. Right. And, and, uh, so it has kind of some of this, I guess, self-deprecation in the, in the mm. album. And I appreciated that from a band at this point who had been so big, like the Beatles, that you have that moment on the album. And I, I just thought that the whole experience of it was just great. And I want to share that. I want to share that with my kids. So maybe I'll have to have one that they can wreck on their record player and <laughs> one that I keep hidden for when that happens. Mm. Well, to, I mean, to me, we, we've talked, we've hit on a few of the themes we talked about in, in the record club. You know, one of it's just context matters. Context always matters. What you bring to an album, what you bring to art in general matters. Where you are in relation to data or science or um, an event or a work of art will matter. And um, this album is, I don't want to say inconsistent, like it's a, a negative piece, but to Ben's point about all the different voices that are prominently featured, you don't always get that with a band where you're going to have a, a certain member is going to get a song that they get to write. But it's inconsistent. It's choppy in the sense that it literally stops <laughs> at the end of a song. It stops. Um, but and it has this undercurrent of tension between two of the greatest songwriters to ever live, and I, a little bit of disclosure: uh, I am one of the one in twenty Americans for who has suffered for a very long time, um, feeling very little for the Beatles. Um, I do not dislike them. I have never said that I dislike them, but I think my idea of them was the Monkees Beatles. The Beatles that were poppy, happy, sing-songy, um, and this album, um, what it, what the process we go through has helped me to do. It's to number first. It's helped me realize I like more Beatles songs than I thought I did. It's also helped me realize that they have way more weirdness and depth than I ever thought. Which, Andrea, to your point, I love weird. I love weird stuff, and this this album is weird in a in the best of ways. Um, but it's also highlighted for me that, you know, we talked at the start about the, the rift between John and Paul. And I go back and forth, and neither one is a negative. But the first part is, did, did that riff create a tortured masterpiece that we love? It's a masterpiece because it's so tortured, and it's tortured because it's a masterpiece. Or is this album an, uh, that, that could have been something more? Like, what if they hadn't had that riff? What would it have been? And I wonder about that. But I, I, I don't know that it ultimately matters. I don't know that it matters. Art, the, the best art evokes a response. And to me, this album, it's helped me to learn that, that it's not, the beauty of it isn't the subjective quality that I like it or dislike it or I'm going to play it a million times or not. It's, it's um, good art is that ability to draw a response. It's that ambivalence in and of itself that I don't know how I feel about this album all the time. That's a response. 
that's a reaction and it's pulling me in and I can't help but interact with it. And that is great art. And so I'm going to say the Beatles, this album is great art. And I'm going to say I don't own it yet. So technically speaking, I can't buy it again. But I, I could see that getting there because I think there's enough to appreciate, even if you don't love it all the time, to appreciate and want it in your collection. That's what I got on the Beatles. I think that's that's a wrap. Nice. That's a wrap on Abbey Road with the Beatles and Andrea Jones Roy. Andrea, you've been such a fun guest. Thank you for being here. Um, our fans are now going to go run out and they're going to look up the Detroit Flyers <laughs> circus team. They're going to go out. They're going to look up all the books you mentioned. They're going right. to go out and they're going to start banging on the doors of the International Monetary Fund and say, give us your data. Uh, yep. Where can they find out about you? <laughs> I mean, only they can only find me after they've done all of those things. Yes, like global, in that order. <laughs> uh, uh, what's the word? Scavenger hunt. Uh, yes. <laughs> bother God. a trapeze artist in Detroit. Call the go to the IMF. <laughs> get a physical copy of their data. Yeah, it's all complicated. It. But then uh, they can find me on the internet. That's where I am a lot of the time. Uh, Jonesroy.com is my website. J O N E S R O O Y, and there's links to all the other stuff there. But I'm on social media at Jonesroy. Uh, also J-O-N-E-S-R-O-O-Y. And I also just have to add that ever since you asked the question of what's your favorite moment in the album, I've had the one, I don't know if it's a phrase, the carry that weight just ringing in a loop in my head over mm -hmm. and over and over again since you said that. So that's the one. And I'm going to mm. go like hum that for the rest of my life. So thank you for making me think of that part. <laughs> but it's such a sad moment, right? I know we're done talking yeah. about it, but it's like, we have to carry the weight of being the Beatles for the rest of our lives. We all have to come together and do the whatever. Anyway, that's just like literally on loop in my head. So I'll probably talk about that on social media after this. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. You know what? Carry the weight though. That's, that's what, you know, Andrea is carrying the weight. Uh, follow their work on uh, Andrea, uh, Ro no, jonesroy.com mm -hmm. on social. Uh, carry the weight by being part of the club. It's a tough world out there, man. There's a lot going on. Come join us. Talk music. Follow us along. Talk about it with your friends. Start your own clubs. That's what this is all about. Uh, this Ben described it a little bit. This process is always a joy to find out what you like, what you don't like, and what you love, and what you need to own too. So, and to do it with great friends. So, uh, we want to thank our guest Andrea Jones Roy for joining us here on the Real Wolf Record Club. Uh, follow us at Real Wolf Record Club on Instagram, Real Wolf RC on Twitter, www.realwolfrecordclub.com. You can find episode information, playlists if you dare, and our merch link done by our very good friend Ward Sutton. Go buy some shirts from Ward. They got uh, a little Easter egg. The wolf, it's named Chad. So go to realwolfrecordclub.com. Join the club. Be part of the conversation. This has been the Real Wolf Record Club. This has been the Real Wolf Record Club podcast. The Real Wolf Record Club is a production of Real Wolf Productions, LLC, a limited liability company. The show is produced today by Ben Head. Our panelists were Ryan McInnes, Hannah Vantomi, and I'm your host, Joe Vantomi. Follow us and join the club on Instagram at Real Wolf Record Club. On Twitter at Real Wolf RC. Go to our website to find links to the episodes, upcoming news and information, as well as a link to buy merch from our very own Ward Sutton at www.realwolfrecordclub.com. Join us next episode when we discuss the 1959 jazz masterpiece, Mingus Ah Um by Charles Mingus. It's out of